wish to introduce someone really special to you this morning. We have Nancy Orberg with us here. Um, Nancy is the CEO of Transforming the Bay with Christ. Uh, TBC, as many of you know, is a coalition of gospel-believing churches here in the Bay Area that we're super proud to be a part of. Um, Nancy is one of the strongest champions and conduits for uncommon unity among churches here in the Bay Area. Something that sounds really nice on paper and can be really difficult in practice and uh, has also been kind of foundational. This kind of unity has been really foundational for the movement of new church plants these last several years. And uh, we're just really grateful for Nancy. Every time we connect, we're equal parts deeply encouraged and deeply challenged, and that's so perfect. So um, can you guys give Nancy a really warm round of welcome here? It's great to be back. I love what you've done with the place. It looks great. It's been such an encouragement for me to be part of your journey. And I've told Dave and Cindy and others, uh, when you guys are old, people will come to you and say, you helped plant a church during COVID. Tell me all about it. It'll be part of your journey and your history. Well, this morning, we're going to be talking about visions of vocation, about faith and work. And so I'd like you to think about what is it that you currently do right now it could be paid, unpaid, it could be in the home, in corporate, and hold that as a context as we go through what would it mean to take seriously this intersection of faith and work. But I want to give you a little context first. Years ago, before I do what I do now, I used to be a nurse, and I remember very vividly, as most of us in the medical field would, that my first patient who died, his name was Mr. Bart, he was from Russia. He was 92 years old, and his health had declined enough significantly that we did this very old procedure that's kind of barbaric, but we couldn't get IVs in, we couldn't get a peripheral line or a central line in, and so we did clysis, where you take these really thick, long needles and you pull up what's left of the skin of the thigh and you insert the needle in and you drip the water in or the saline in very slowly so they can absorb nutrients. And it was the first time I ever did clysis and the last time because people don't do it much anymore. But I remember going in after I had come in from my shift at 3 o'clock and spending some time with him. It was clear he probably wasn't going to make it through the night. I worked with another nurse named Jeff who had been my mentor. And we were busy taking care of him. And then pretty suddenly his breathing changed. And Jeff and I stood with him for about 10 or 12 minutes holding his hand as he passed. And I was surprised at how quickly the tears welled up in my eyes for somebody who was 92, somebody who I didn't know. And one of the other nurses came in quickly to clean up and saw me, and she said, honey, here's how you're going to make it in medicine. You're going to have to get over that. And she left. And then Jeff leaned over to me and said, or not. <laughs> And then after the shift was over, he talked about, if you can hold on to that. And it was one of a defining moment for me that integrated faith and work, where work wasn't just a place that I did Monday through Friday outside of church, but it really was the calling of God on my life to do something that mattered. So I want to look this morning at what it means to have a vision for your vocation. And vocation isn't just about your career. The Latin root is about a strong inclination to a particular state or way of life. So it's the wholeness of life. It includes 
the many jobs that are embedded in your vocation, your work, your career, your relational world, your family, your leisure, your citizenship. But how do we live our lives before and with God in a way that we can more and more begin to internalize this love of God? I'm going to read to you a quote from Dallas Willard. It's one of the few quotes of Dallas Willard I can actually understand without having to ask my husband what he meant. Um, but this is the context for thinking about faith and work. The acid test for any theology is this. Is the God presented one that can be loved, soul, heart, mind, and strength? If the thoughtful answer is not really, then we need to look deeper. It doesn't matter how sophisticated intellectually or doctrinally our approach is. And this is the key part. If it fails to set a lovable God, a radiant, happy, friendly, accessible, and totally competent being before ordinary people, we have gone wrong and should not keep going in the same direction, but should turn around and take another road. The context for this vision of faith and work is about how much God loves us and how much God loves the world. We were called from the very beginning of time to have dominion with God over his creation. Last time I was here and spoke on faith and work a couple of years ago, I mentioned that from Genesis chapter 1, when God had a chance to introduce himself to the human human beings, he didn't say, I'm really important, I'm really smart, I'm really powerful. He said, I'm a worker. And then he invited us to be part of producing value in the world. And work is mostly communal in nature. It's with other people and it's for other people. Vaclav Havel says that we have an accountability in and responsibility for the world that says that vocation is implication. Our vocation is implication in how do we partner with God in the renewing of the world? How do we surrender our work to God? In Colossians 3, uh, verse 17, there's a verse you're probably all familiar with. It's very simple, but it's hard to do. Whatever you do, whether it's in word or deed, do all of it in the name of Jesus Christ. And maybe I'm the only one here who has actually gone to work and not really lived that out. Um, in my career, uh, I went to school uh, to be a doctor. Uh, as you notice, I am not. Um, I have been a nurse, a pastor, a business consultant, and now run a nonprofit. But before I had my career and my vocation, I had a series of first jobs. My first jobs were very unique. I babysat. I worked for my dad's company when the IBM files used to be cards with chads that you punch out. Google it for those of you that are younger than me. I worked on Catalina Island one summer. I worked at Derwiner Schnitzel, uh, putting paper around hot dogs. I still, to this day, love Derwiner Schnitzel hot dogs. I worked at Marie Callender's. I cleaned horse stalls out and trained horses. I recorded books on tape. I did catalog work. I worked at Disneyland. So I want you to think for a minute, what was one of your first jobs that nobody else might know about? What was one of your very first jobs? And I'm going to give you one minute. I want you to turn to somebody else in the room and exchange what that was for you. One minute. Go. This is the part where you talk. Stand up, sit down, whatever.
Okay, if you want to come on back, come on back. Uh, let's have two people share for somebody else. What did you, what was a job that somebody shared with you that you thought, what? You did what? Get to tell on somebody else. What was something unusual that you heard? That has implications, doesn't it? <laughs> Once you see the underbelly. Okay. Somebody else. It's a job that you heard of that you want everybody to know about. <laughs> One more. This is the part where you talk. <laughs> Nobody? Yes. yes. Oh, go. We'll do two. <laughs> Five down, two up. What kind of? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Great, great. I mean, it's fascinating to find out how many jobs we have during the course of our lives, and it's easy to see our vocation is a place where maybe God meets us when we're doing our career, but most of life is ordinary. Most of life is ordinary. So what do you do when you're in a job that isn't your dream job? What do you do in a job that's one of your first jobs, your in-between jobs, or on those days when even you're in the career that you love, there is a redundancy and a routine to it. Of the many pre-jobs I mentioned to you, let me tell you just a couple of things that I learned that have stayed with me my whole life from these particular places. Marie Callender's in college. One of my jobs I had, and I don't know if any of you remember, we used to have the big puffy uh, orange sleeves, and we would stuff our dollar bills up our sleeves for our tips. Um, I didn't like pie when I started to work at Marie Callender's. I adore pie now that I have worked at Marie Callender's. But I remember in our training, uh, the, the manager sat us down after he hired us, and he did a couple of different things. The first thing he did is he showed us as we sat at a table where it was all set up with the forks and the napkins and the condiments where they were supposed to be. And we all sat three or four to a table while he trained us. And at one point, he would sit at the table with you, and he would move things around, and he would just ask you to put them back where they belonged. So you were learning where things went. And then he made the great point. You're going to get annoyed after a while that people mess this table up and don't put things back where they're supposed to go. That's your job, not theirs. And I want you, every time you have to put things back into the table, to do it with great joy. He said, the way you feel today because you just got hired, you're excited about this job. I can guarantee you within a few weeks, people are going to annoy you. But that's why we have a job. And he's, the second thing he said is, people come into our, this is a Marie Calendars, you guys. People come into this restaurant and they're tired. They're sad. They're celebrating something and we get to be a part of that. And so if you serve them well, but also a little unobtrusively, it's gonna be a great experience for them. 
and that has served me really well as my work ethic has gotten shaped over the future. Horse stall cleaning and training horses. Yeah, I did that for quite a while. And ironically, there's something incredibly satisfying of leading a horse out of a stall that's full of things it should not be full of long-term. And it smells and it's messy. And taking the rake and cleaning it up and getting it just so and then going outside and cleaning the horse's hooves and getting the horse cleaned up and then bringing a clean horse back into a clean stall. It's just a great feeling. It's putting a little bit of the order back in the universe that God intended when he first created it. And it's part of our intersection of faith and work. At Disneyland, in our training, which was extensive, they talked about, you will get asked 52 times a day where the restrooms are. But those 52 people, they don't know where the restrooms are. They've never asked that question before. Your annoyance at that question needs not to leak through. They told us during training at Disneyland that on the Jungle Cruise, a couple of years prior, there was a young couple who had come out from the East Coast and they were staying at the Disneyland Hotel and they were waiting in a long line to get on the Jungle Cruise and they asked the guy that walked by to check on the line how long the ride was. He had been asked that question one too many times that day. He got a little snarky anti-Disneyland and he said, three days. <laughs> this couple got back on the monorail and went back to the hotel and packed bags and came back and waited in line for a three-day trip. When the manager found out, that young man at Disneyland lost his job because it wasn't the Disney way. But it is possible in jobs you don't like that aren't important to learn really good things that cause you to be Jesus in the world that will also serve you really well when you're working in your career or in a job that gives you great satisfaction. So in the next few minutes, I want to just talk about... Uh, three different things that we bring to this intersection of faith and work that are so important. And I think of them as tensions of not choices necessarily, but living on the continuum that are these three things. So the first one is our identity, our identity. It is very easy, especially in the Silicon Valley where lots of people come to live out their dreams of vocation to put too much pressure or too much weight on our identity in our jobs. Silicon Valley can be all-consuming. Success is an addictive drug. Our job title says things about us that we present to people in a way to hide behind. Um, we, bring, we get prestige. It begins to consume all of our time. The money becomes the thing that gives us value. And it can warp our identity in ways that it was never meant to be our primary identity. I have been for many years a pastor's wife, and it is one of the goofiest uh, designations I have ever been exposed to, right, Cindy? So weird. Like, who else goes to a gathering and they say, well, this is Nancy, the dentist's wife? <laughs> who gets introduced according to your spouse's preoccupation? Nobody. And it's just annoying. And I used to always tell people I am not a pastor's wife. I happen to be married to a man who was a pastor. Because if he stops being a pastor, we don't get divorced. I'm not, I'm just, this is, this is his career. But something can become your identity to the point that you get lost in it. And not just lost, you forget where your core identity really is. 
the core identity that's going to hold at the center of who you are no matter what changes in life. And that's our identity in Christ. The essence of who we are. Work is a significant part of our identity, but it comes out of our core identity. It's one of the many ways in which our identity shows up in the world, but it is not our core. The core essence of a person is way beyond your work. I am a wife, a mom, a friend, a daughter, a cousin, but most importantly, and always, I'm a child of God. That's the core that will hold that unshakable, non-shifting center in which I feel and experience the love and the pleasure of God. And I don't know about you, but I'm having to get the machete out multiple times a day and hack through the pathway to find myself back at that core identity when my identity shifts and gets placed in the wrong place. It's a lifelong journey, I think. But our identity is firmly in God, not our work. Uh, Colossians, well, let me do this first. Um, at the same time, and this is why it's attention, at the same time, the Bible is full of times where it mentions somebody's occupation. When you think about Jesus, if he lived 33, 33 and a half years, disproportionately way more percentage of him was as a child and as a carpenter than it ever was in ministry. She goes to tell us something. But if you had to guess, how many times in the Bible is an occupation mentioned? What would you guess? How many times? So just turn to the person next to you and figure out a number. How many times? How many times is an occupation mentioned in Scripture? I always hate questions like this in a public setting because you know this person knows the answer. It feels like a setup for disaster, but let's take a few guesses. How many times do you think um, an occupation is mentioned in Scripture? A hundred, okay. Five hundred. Okay. One. Three hundred. It's interesting that... um, the admonition not to be afraid is mentioned about 365 times in the Bible. Um, the call to pray, a little bit more than that. If you guessed 543, you guessed 543, that would be a large number compared to what you get when you think about don't, being af- don't be afraid or praying. Actually, 5,000. 433 times an occupation is mentioned in scripture. Somebody back there is cheering like, if there had been a prize, I would have won. But easy to say after the numbers up there on the screen. So this is saying something to us. It's like the book of Psalms that means praise. Numerically, there are two-thirds Psalms of lament and one-third Psalm of praise. That tells us something, that maybe the way to praise is through lament. This tells us that while our core identity is in God always, that this is a significant piece of our identity. That's a lot of mentions in Scripture to take very seriously. Our core identity is in Jesus, but one of the main expressions is our work. 
Colossians 3, chapter 23, another familiar verse. Whatever you do, Paul says, work at it with all your heart as though you are working for the Lord, not for human mankind. And for the bosses that some of you have, this is a very encouraging verse. I would like not to work for him or her. I will then get into my head when I go to work that it really is God that I'm working with. I feel like this verse gets so overquoted so many times it loses its punch. So whether you're cleaning out uh, horse stalls or working at McDonald's even though you'll never eat there again or whatever it is, that your work is for the Lord. That maybe on the way to work, every morning you can remember it's a 30-second prayer in the car or a 30-second prayer as you walk to your computer in your pajamas at home and you just say, God, uh, I feel like my identity's all caught up in my work today. Could you just remind me to work as though my core identity is in you, but I'm working for you no matter what it is, the work I do. Second thing I want to talk about, about faith and work, and this I won't talk about quite as long, but is the whole issue of rest. Rest. Because work can become an all-consuming, misguided identity, when that happens, it's easy to give too many hours to our work. It's easy to let work bleed way over into the hours when we should be done, to bleed into when we wake up in the middle of the night, to consume a good chunk of our weekend or our Sabbath day. I used to be a, a business consultant, and in the 12 years I did that, I would talk to leaders of organizations and go through their schedule with them and say, I'm just going to put this out there. I think it's possible that up to 25% of your hours you're working right now are anxiety-related. They're living in the myth that if I just put in a couple more hours, it will really change things when really it's just your anxiety. And believe me, I suffer from that too. I think I mentioned this last time I was here. There's a fabulous book out called Managing Leadership Anxiety, um, yours and theirs. It's from a pastor, and it's significant. It's so great. We work so hard that we don't take time for the rhythms of rest that will cause us to play and renew us, which is so important in our work. There was a study done years ago about what can predict the avoidance of burnout in leaders. And it was none of the things that you would think of. The number one thing that predicted the lack of burnout was do you have a hobby that you practice on a weekly basis and when you practice it, you lose track of time. The loose track of time is theologically profound because it means whenever you're doing that activity, the world is still spinning on its axis and you had nothing to do with it. The world is still being born on the shoulders of God and the responsibility is not on you. So play and rest is a good antidote to our misguided identity in work. We need rhythms every day and every week and every month and every year that will look very different from vacations to just five or six minutes in the middle of the day where we take a breath and we breathe and we just think about something else to renew our souls for our work and for our identity. At the same time, you can't always live in these perfect rhythms. I got to tell you, Jesus was not a poster boy for balance all the time. There are passages, especially in Mark, where he was working so hard, it said the crowds kept coming to him that they had no time to eat. That there, were so, there was so much work to get done that he had to get in a boat and get pushed away, and then he fell asleep. There are times when our work necessitates that we will have to break out of these renewal rhythms and give 
extra time. I have a friend whose husband is a pediatric oncologist and he's a surgeon, so he operates on children with cancer. At three in the morning, his wife may be incredibly frustrated that he has to leave the family, but she told me, I always sit there and think about the family that he's going to, and I realize we can't live perfect rhythms all the time for the good of other people. But it's about when you get overworked to then stop and pull back and say, it's time now for a season where I'm practicing these rhythms where the identity of God is in me in the right place. Christians ought to have a great work ethic. I think one of the hearts of faith and work in the Silicon Valley is to do great work. It's not leaving a Bible on your desk necessarily or leading a Bible study at lunch, but to do great work. And that's the third thing I want to talk about is impact, impact. We really were designed to live at the intersection of faith and work so that on so many levels of life, in the work that we do and the people that we work with and the culture we're shaping in our work, that we will have great and good impact. And part of that is to just do really good work. I think companies that spend an inordinate amount of time on branding, I would say your brand is your good work. Do a little bit of work on branding, but then show up and do such good work that over time, people are talking about you and they can't stop talking about you. That honors God. So as Christians, what does it mean to take seriously the impact that your good work can have? Uh, Dallas Willard has an amazing quote that says, your work is one of the clearest ways of focusing on apprentice to Jesus. He says it is your primary place of discipleship. Do we really see our work as our primary place of discipleship? It is. What, what does that look like? It's not necessarily the things that it was back in the 50s or 60s that I mentioned, putting a Bible on your desk or you know, leading a Bible study at lunch. I think some of the most significant ways that you can have impact at work is to put in good preparation for a meeting. Lencioni, who is the man I worked with in consulting for 12 years, said, if you do your job right as a leader and you gave your people a choice, you can come to the meeting or you can go and see a movie, they should pick your meeting. Yeah, okay, I think I have a little work to do. Your meeting should be that compelling because movies are entertaining, but the work we're doing matters. So how do I prep for a meeting so that it's creative and clear and a call to action how do I include people that may not be the first to talk on a team meeting, but they have important things to say? How do I help people that talk a little too much with people that might not talk enough and make sure that there's room and space for them? How do I apologize at work in a really authentic way? Because my guess is every day there's two or three things that we could say, you know, I dropped the ball. I'm so sorry I didn't get back to you on time. I think I misspoke. Imagine if Christ followers showed up with genuine apologies in a workplace. What would change over time? How do you make decisions in the workplace? As a Christ follower, do you do them in a fair and ethical way that looks for buy-in and inclusion from lots of people? How do you give feedback to people, both positive and negative, in a way that honors their dignity, but really is about trying to develop the best in somebody else? How do you become a non-anxious presence in the workplace? Harvard Business Review said that is the single best gift a leader can give to an organization, that's what the book Managing Leadership Anxiety is about. That's the internal work we have to do with God to say, how can I bring a non-anxious presence to my work, to my world? 
How do we become people who have gentle non-cooperation with evil? When somebody suggests a decision at work that cuts corners or isn't full of integrity, and I don't think that happens all that often, but seriously, but when it does, how do we have a gentle, not alarmist, you know, I don't think that's a good idea, and here's why. Gentle non-cooperation with evil. One of the um, companies that I consulted with a few years ago had a CEO that I really loved working with. And one day he walked me down to the car from this big building. And he stopped at the front desk and he had about a four minute conversation with the admin there. He knew her son's name. He knew that he had a basketball game a few days earlier. And he asked her all about her son's game. When he rejoined me to walk me out to my car, I just glanced over my shoulder and I wish you could have seen the expression on her face. She felt seen. She was happy. It was four minutes out of his day, one time a week maybe. But it was a way to have a really great impact. Um, work is fundamentally God's work. Wherever you go to work, it is a sacred cathedral. George MacDonald years ago wrote this, the place of a person's labor is the temple of Jesus Christ, where the spirit of the person is incorporated in its work. Horse stalls and Google, they are sacred cathedrals. They are places where the church is the church, not the church gathered, but the church scattered. A couple of years ago, my husband's father was in decline in his health and it was clear that he probably wouldn't last out the year and so John took him on a bucket list trip to the Galapagos Islands. It was one of the places John's dad had always wanted to go. John's mother definitely didn't want to go. So John took his dad and had a really remarkable memory filling time. When John came home he said one night the naturalist did a lecture on the on the boat and said that on the Galapagos Islands there's one particular colony of beetles and the work they do in the ecosystem there, if, those, if that particular beetle colony ever collapsed within 20 years, the entire ecosystem of the Galapagos Islands would collapse. And nobody goes to the Galapagos Islands to see those beetles. But that's how important they are. And I remember when John told me that story, I had two thoughts. With the work I do in the Bay Area, I thought about all of our small churches, which sometimes can feel not as important as medium-sized churches or large churches, which is not true that they are the beetles holding the ecosystem together. But the other thing I thought was, um, when you think about impact, you think Jesus really should have used language that matched impact. Jesus should have used language about tsunamis and seismic shifts, but he didn't. He built the universe on the operating system of a disproportionate impact of small things. And so he talked about salt and light and yeast and seed. And these beetles are unseen, mostly unnoticed, but the work they do is so critical. So how are the ways that I treat people and do my work become the beetles of the Galapagos Islands? I have a small group of women I meet with on a regular basis. We read books together, we pray together. And one of the women, when she heard that story, got so excited, she, she works at Stanford, and she said, I forget all the time that my faith should be brought to work, all the time. And she said, now I'm gonna be the beetle. I'm gonna be the beetle. So the last time we got together, I had these little circles made up, and we have them on our keychain. It says, be the beetle. Just be the beetle. Don't worry about, you'll get a chance maybe sometimes to do great things, but because most days are ordinary, how do we just be the beetle? 
as a way to acknowledge that what Jesus said was true, that salt and light and yeast and seed are impactful in remarkable ways. John and I just heard a sermon a couple weeks ago about two different passages in scripture where 90 cups of flour were brought out for hospitality, 90 cups. It's called a selah. And the proportionate amount of yeast to 90 cups to turn it into bread is less than half a cup. That's how powerful these disproportionate impact will be from these small things. I want to read you this prayer in closing. This will be our prayer. It was, uh, people give it to, uh, say that it was written by Oscar Romero, an archbishop down in South America, but it turns out it was somebody else. But I love, love, love this prayer. It helps now and then to step back and take the long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No meeting brings perfection. No job brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that will one day grow. We water the seeds already planting, planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We, produce, we provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. It enables us to do something and to do it well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter in and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are a prophet of a future, not our own. Amen.